I am Quicksilver, Aaron Quicksilver. Just a man with a tent filled with wonders and a handful of stories in search of a willing audience. I travel the roads of America seeking its heart. If you can't see the black heart of America, you're either blind or a fool. Do you have a time for a story? Welcome to Now Playing's review of Quicksilver Highway. Why are you doing this? What do you want from me? Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series. What did I ever do to you? Hosted by Arnie. You might say I'm a collector. I collect rare objects. Stuart. I'm not one of the great unwashed who sits spellbound in front of the tube for seven and a half hours a day watching empty calories dance in their heads. And Jacob. Oh, uh, my mind and body get along quite well. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Radio says it's going to get worse before it gets better. We hope you enjoy the show. Shall I tell you one of the stories I've collected? Today we're discussing Quicksilver Highway, starring Christopher Lloyd, Matt Frewer, Raphael Sabarge. <laughs> no, you just stop at Lloyd and Frewer. Like, that's <laughs> it. Dream team. I don't know. Yeah. Elder Barge is in this movie? That's too much. Brain exploding. I mean, we got Veronica Cartwright, Bill Nunn. I mean, there's people in here. Do not care. <laughs> Clive Barker, Constance Zimmer. Did you notice John Landis? He's in here. Nope. Directed by our friend, Mick Garris. Woohoo! Stephen King's friend. This is Arnie, the ghost of now playing with the Quicksilver Tongue. And Stuart. Look, the name's Jacob, okay? Not dude or man, and definitely not Dudemar. What's a Dudemar? <laughs> I don't even, I've never heard that term. I don't even know if I got it right, but I heard Dudemar. I'm not even sure what a Dudemar would mean, yeah. You live in the valley, so if anyone's heard Dudemar, I would think it would be you. Yeah, they're heading to L.A. I'm like, that ain't L.A. slang. <laughs> yeah, it must be coming from the brilliant mind of Stephen King. No, no, I mean, yes, that is, but this movie we're here to discuss another short story compilation. After doing the eight-episode Nightmares and Dreamscapes, we're here with a Fox TV movie movie this was not a two-night event this was all like just cram it down their throat in one go i mean i think it was more like piss out the window kind of <laughs> like don't even pull over this barely made a ripple the origins of this couldn't be any different than the product we received than i can imagine mick garris was approached by abc this was right after he finished the shining but before it aired and I want to just point out, he is on a record run with King at this point. It's been like five years of nothing but him doing Stephen King, starting with the catastrophe sleepwalkers, going on to the stand, and then ghosts. We haven't even discussed ghosts, but I got to put a plug out there. Did you know that Michael Jackson ripped his own self off? A decade after Thriller, he made a horror music video for the Addams Family. And then when he got accused of child molestation, the Addams Family values were not Michael's values. And so he ended up having this 40-minute weird music video that McGarris directed part of. 
No, I don't know about this. Never heard of this. <laughs> you actually, I'm going to beg people to go seek this out. Stephen King wrote it and gave it to Michael. And then he said, you know who you need to hire to direct this? <laughs> Mick Garris. And wow, is all I can say. Like, I'll just give briefly. The idea is a lynch mob is storming Neverland Ranch because Michael has, quote, scared the kids. And the kids are like, we like Michael to scare us. But the parents are like, Michael can't scare the kids anymore and we're going to get him. And it's being led by this fat middle-aged mayor from Normalville who is actually Michael <laughs> under prosthetics. So he's, you know, chasing himself down for scaring all these children. And of course, like he gets in there and... There's Michael dancing around with ghosts and demons and forever. Like in these terrible songs you've never heard before. They like, it's the opposite of Thriller in so many ways. But really an amazing Mick Garris, Stephen King collaboration. Then he did The Shining. And you're right. This is the topper. This is the end of it. Well, he was asked by ABC to do a TV series based on real world ghost stories. What does that mean? For example, Stuart, you remember talking about the legend at the Playhouse when you were a kid that some actor there hung himself and his ghost was around, just that urban legend? Sure. Find real-world urban legends of ghosts and then create fictionalized stories around them and call it a based-on-real-events television series. Mm. He just decided that He'd take the job, but on his own, he just changed it to a guy with a traveling sideshow as a frame who would just tell Twilight Zone-ish stories. And because he knew King, the first one he wrote was Chattering Teeth, which we're here to talk about. But then ABC said, no, we don't want this. And McGarris said from working with ABC on the miniseries, he knew they wouldn't really want a horror series. Or at least this horror series. So he started shopping this around, ended up over at Fox. Yes, it did. Of course it did. I know this. I'm just going to put it out there. I've seen this movie before. My first day working at Fox... They kind of stuck me in a room with all of their movies. And they're just like, we can't get to you today. We're busy. Go ahead and watch something. Yeah, and like, it's a wall of everything they've ever made from The Sound of Music, Star Wars, what have you. And I saw this box and I was like jumping up and down with glee going, oh my God, is this real? They really made this? You knew about this or was the box just so outrageous you had to see it? The fact that it was Clive Barker, Christopher Lloyd, <laughs> Stephen King, Mick Garris, all of these things coming together. And I knew the story of the body politic. It is my favorite Clive Barker work, period. Okay, I'm guessing they changed it then for this adaptation. They have. But I was very excited to see how that would be adapted. All I remember is like my coworkers kept coming in, looking at the TV and the disembodied hands or whatever and being like, what are you watching? Like they thought they had seen every Fox movie. I'm like, uh-uh, I pulled this one out. See, and I'd never heard of this. When it aired, I knew about The Shining. I watched The Shining. But Stephen King was starting a television blitz I couldn't follow around this time with Storm of the Century and this, and Rose Red. The TNT stuff. 
Yeah, I feel like they had stopped making, for the most part, they had stopped making feature films of his work, and it was all TV miniseries on cable. Yeah, so I didn't know about this. I don't think they wanted you to know about this. <laughs> uh, this aired, what, once on sweeps against things that people wanted to see? Yeah, against ER. Mm. Clooney's last season. Well, this has a surgeon in it. Like, why wouldn't you watch this? <laughs> so... Mick Garris talked on the commentary about how he lamented, nobody has seen this. Like, seven people have watched this movie. It should be more. (laughs) And what happened was he took it over to Fox, and Fox said, what we want to do is backdoor pilot this. We're really into movies of the week right now. So write a second episode, we'll put it out as a movie, and if it does well, we'll make a series. And so Mick Garris, he, you know, Clive Barker did appear in Sleepwalkers in a cameo. So I guess he knew Clive. Clive appears here in a cameo. He did the body politic. And I agree with you, Stuart. Great short story. I'm surprised anybody would dare attempt to make it on a television budget. Mm-hmm. From what I heard, I did read a little, like, magazine write-up from Mick Garris talking about his entire career. And apparently he and Clive were working at this time on making The Mummy. It ended up going to Brendan Fraser and whoever did those, but it was them working on it. And of course, it was like a transgender mummy that would like slip on the bandages and go from woman to man or whatever. Did The Mummy peel its flesh off at some point? Because that seems to be a Barker thing. (laughs) You know it's got to, right? Like there's probably like nine things that the studio didn't want in their mummy movie and Clive wanted to do all of it. And so they were in close working terms. And I guess, yeah, if he had to do a quickie second episode, it's easy enough to turn to the guy you're making the mummy with and say, give me your best stuff. So this did air. Now, Mick Garris found out later that he was talking to the wrong people at Fox. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm going to bite my tongue on that. (laughs) Who are the right people for this show? (laughs) (laughs) It turns out that Fox's television series people are totally different than Fox's TV movie people. And he was talking to the TV movie people. The TV series people never even looked at this. They never watched it. (laughs) I think Stuart was the first Fox person to see it. (laughs) I'm telling you, I worked at Fox Television and they did not know what this was. They heard me cackling. They're like, who's the new guy watching all these severed hands? (laughs) Yeah. So apparently he made this thinking it was going to be a series. They signed Christopher Lloyd to do a series. Was this a get? Like, no. Yes. Come on. This is a get. Christopher Lloyd is a movie star. Mm. By this point, he has done things like walk like a man. I don't know if you're a get if you're willing to have this hairdo and wear this dress. Yeah. No, I believe Christopher Lloyd is too big for television. But then again, he did do a guest spot on an episode of Tremors, so... And he is from television. I mean, he got his start in Taxi. So, yes, this would be a return home to (laughs) network TV for him. Taxi, yeah. I'm saying, though, by this point, does he need a regular gig, though? You know, that's the thing about television is it's sometimes a grind. People don't want to work in TV if they work in movies because you have to work constantly like this. And how could he go do Piranha 3 Double D if he was doing Quicksilver Highway all the time? 
he definitely was on the list with Whoopi Goldberg and Carrot Top and like Pauly Shore. If he was in a movie at this point, Leslie Nielsen, do whatever you can to get away from it. Don't let it get into your eyes. Adam's Family? I mean, come on. People love that movie. Adam's Family was five years before this movie. And I wonder if that's where the hand effects come from. I was thinking that, yeah. Actually, the answer is yes. They used Adam's Family techniques and even the same magician who did thing in the Adams family did the primary hand here. But yes, the result is this two-hour movie that would never become a series aired out of order. By the time he delivered it to Fox, Fox was like, you know what? We think we want to save the Stephen King story for the climax of this. It's the more exciting one. So we're going to air Barker first, King second. Whereas the way Garris delivered it and the way it is on the DVD release was King first, Barker second. Mm, yeah. Okay. I'm not sure which order makes more sense. <laughs> I'm not sure that there is. The way that I saw it, I saw a, a YouTube of it out there and it was the network broadcast. So it started with severed hands and moved on to the teeth. That's strange that that would even be out there on YouTube to me. Someone ripped their VHS tape. Yeah, somebody asked me if this was available in Blu-ray, and I'm like, you know, this was made during the era of low-def television. Yeah. It wasn't filmed in high-def. DVD's as good as it's going to get for you. At least they kept it in the 4 to 3 ratio, though, of that it was shot in, as compared to when they cropped The Shining for DVD. Yeah, from what I heard in that same article, McGarris said that he was just having so much fun on The Shining, he and the crew didn't want to stop. So the reason why they did this was they just wanted to have fun. Yeah, they shot this after The Shining, and it aired one week after The Shining. He said his <laughs> final day of filming was three days before this aired. Hmm. Wow. Well, I mean, that is television for you. That it's, I mean, usually when you're working week to week, yeah, you don't have much more than, you know, luxury would be a, a week in between to edit. But you see some of the effects in this, Stuart? I mean, you need more than a couple days. <laughs> you need like three days. Uh, you're right. It definitely took more than 48 hours to make those hands move. But uh, let's talk about it, Arnie. We need, I've been actually, ever since we started the Stephen King retrospective, I've been looking forward to returning to this moment in my life where I was incredulously watching Christopher Lloyd do these things. Let's find out if it's fun, Arnie. Hit us with the plots. Quicksilver Highway features Christopher Lloyd as the loquacious carny Aaron Quicksilver. On his way to the carnival, he comes across a new bride in a broken down car. He tells that bride the story of Chattery Teeth, where a salesman named Bill Hogan played by Raphael Sbarge, is driving to his home in L.A., but gets stuck in a desert sandstorm. Stopping for gas, he sees a large pair of toy wind-up teeth, and Hogan buys them as his son's birthday present. <laughs> I mean, let's stop right there. Why? Why that? If you don't risk your life. <laughs> because you're a bad father, and it's better than Listerine from the 7-Eleven. You haven't bought a gift. You need something. Here's some chattering teeth. Happy birthday. <laughs> While leaving the gas station, Hogan is approached by a hitchhiker who calls himself Brian Adams. <laughs> played by Silas Weir Mitchell. Against his better judgment, Hogan gives the guy a ride. But on the road, Adam pulls a weapon and it'll cut like a knife. 
Nah, I knew you were going to do that. If you weren't going to do it, I was going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Was this in the summer of 69? (laughs) Instead of giving up his money and car, Hogan floors the gas. The car's clipped by a semi and rolls over. Both men survive the crash, but Hogan is trapped by a seatbelt. As Adams comes to kill the man, the chattering teeth come to life and attack the hitchhiker. Because... (laughs) (laughs) To be determined. After chomping Adams to death, the teeth then release Hogan from his seatbelt. The second story is told to a pickpocket who comes upon Quicksilver's carnival show. That story is the body politic. In that tale, Beverly Hills plastic surgeon Dr. Charles George, played by Matt Frewer, is troubled that his hands seem to be acting on their own. While George sleeps, his hands communicate. The right hand calls itself the Messiah, the left hand his willing supplicant. The hands plan to sever themselves from the tyranny of the body so they can be set free. Indeed, against George's will, his hands strangle and kill his wife. Then the right hand grabs a meat cleaver and severs the left hand, which runs away to find more like him. While George is hospitalized, Lefty spreads the gospel of freedom, and throughout the hospital, hands rebel against their owners and cut themselves free. The legion of hands then goes to free their master, George's right hand. Realizing what's happening, George goes to the roof of the hospital. He tells all the hands he is the Messiah and to follow him to freedom. He leaps from the roof to his death, and like lemmings, all the hands follow to their own demise. Has this forever ended the body part rebellion? One woman's nose seems to be getting up to some ideas of its own (laughs) as the second story ends and credits roll. Yeah, definitely a lot of thumbing of noses happening on here. Man, oh man, yeah. I guess if you're going to call it Quicksilver Highway, it does make sense to start with the highway. The idea that we have this couple stranded, just married, all they have between them is the top tier of their wedding cake. They don't want to eat it, and he's going to leave her to go find gas. A classic setup. Do you know either of these actors? I really can't say I'm familiar with Raphael Sbarge. No, you keep saying it, I guess because it's fun. It makes me think of Sbarro's, which is pizza I've always detested. (laughs) Oh, it's awful. I don't say it because it's fun. I say it because it's his name. His name could be Smith. I'd be saying it just the same. I mean, but you're promoting it like, well, you know, Raphael Sabarge. No, nobody knows. Even Raphael Sabarge doesn't remember (laughs) that he made this. But yes, they're broken down on the side of the road. He's being chivalrous. He's going to walk for help, leaving the bride there with two tires on the side of the road. And yeah, this is just like that. What was that Ford movie we reviewed that had the same setup with the husband having to go? The Vanishing? Yeah, The Vanishing. This is just like The Vanishing, isn't it? But made for TV. Or The Hitcher. I was thinking about both at certain (laughs) points in this episode. Oh, yeah. Hitcher comes up later, definitely. But yeah, this is, I mean, it's a setup to a million. I mean, anything could happen, right? Your worst fears could come rolling up. (laughs) They do. They do roll up. Or (laughs) Christopher Lloyd trying to find the Rocky Horror Picture Show. No, 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 no. I got... Do we know anything about this wardrobe? Because it is amazing from hairdo to the dress. There is. Yeah. <laughs> I thought for sure he was going for S&M Ginger with that collar and everything. But when I listened to the commentary, I was floored. What do you think it is, Jacob? Okay. My guess. And this is crazy. I couldn't believe they were pulling this off. But this. They're not pulling it off. I'm going to start there. <laughs> okay. True. Yeah. Nothing is being pulled off here. 
is this Morpheus, King of Dream from Neil Gaiman's Sandman? Because that dress. No, no. This is Lawrence Olivier doing King Lear. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> oh, that's rich. They were going highbrow, at least. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it was Christopher Lloyd's decision. Mick Garris couldn't talk him out of it. And Mick was agreeing with me. It looks like you're about to go to some clubs with whips and chains. But Christopher Lloyd showed up with this. This was his choice? Yes. Show me the Lawrence Olivier movie where he wore the fishnet stockings. Yeah. I mean, no. Apparently King Lear. I could not believe this getup. Did Christopher Lloyd go through a goth period? Did you find him at a Marilyn Manson concert in 97? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I couldn't tell what was with the wig, but the rest of it, I mean, it does not look like a collar that would be in classic Shakespeare. It looks like a dog collar. Would you get out of the car is the question. Like, yes, this is what comes rolling up. You're hoping it's your husband with the tow truck. And instead, I think it's a Rolls Royce pulling an Airbus. And like, it's this pimped out dining car. And he wants you to come in for a bite to eat. Yeah, you walk into it and it turns into a giant soundstage. Hey, is anybody going to make fun of the TARDIS? If so, go ahead. If not, I don't want to hear it about his little bus. I was wondering, is that the deal? Is that it to tip you off that this is magical, something mysterious that, yeah, you go into this trailer and it's massive? You don't go in the trailer, right? Like, I'll do it. I'll fight to the <laughs> death to stay in the car and not go into that man's vehicle. No way. Any port in a storm. You're stuck on the side of the road with no food, no drink. You're in the desert. She's got a whole cake in the back seat. She's fine for a week. You got to wait a year to eat that cake. <laughs> no, nothing to drink. You can go without food longer than the water. I'm telling you, you never get into kids. <laughs> never accept a ride from this guy. Never. Depends where I'm going. But they do make quite a pair. The bride in her dress and Christopher Lloyd in whatever. Yeah. Again, if it wasn't Rocky Horror or Frankenfurter that he was going for, I was thinking of Pris from Blade Runner. I'm pretty sure he's wearing leather pants, though. I don't see fishnets. No, the shirt. It's definitely fishnet. And he's got a studded collar around the neck. Oh, yeah. I saw some Christopher Lloyd chest in this. <laughs> right. I saw the dog collar. But when you said fishnets, I thought you meant his pants. He's wearing a leather getup, a leather coat, leather pants, a leather shirt that's, like, tied. It's not leather. It's, like, sheer, black sheer. You saw a YouTube video. I saw a DVD. I guarantee you it's leather. It's mesh. It's see-through. It is not. I'm telling you, I saw Lloyd nipple. It's there. There are mesh elements. I saw Christopher Lloyd's chest. But anyway, we can all fantasize as long as we want <laughs> about the beauty of Christopher Lloyd in this getup. But he's just here to tell a tale while we wait for the husband to walk back with, I guess, jumper cables? Like, what was he going to, like, fix? Like, a new tire? I Who even knows? I imagine he was getting a tow truck. Okay, yeah. All right. But he'll end up walking back. Or he never got very far. Yeah, nothing about this one makes any sense. So let's just get into it. I want to just put it out there right off the bat. Chattery Teeth is a bad story. It is in Nightmares and Dreamscapes. It is one of the worst stories in that collection. It really feels like a night shift throwback. This short story was published in 1992. And there's this horror magazine called Cemetery Dance. And King was a fan of it. 
It turns out he and the editor of Cemetery Dance would end up writing books together. The Gwendy's Button Trilogy. Okay. I'm vaguely, vaguely aware. But he was a fan of this magazine. And in 1992, he just sent them a short story to publish unsolicited. Now, what I don't know is when he wrote this short story. I know it was published in 92. I know he was just coming off his writer's block around 92. But I also know he is not one to let anything he wrote at any time not see print. And so I wonder if he pulled this from a drawer between The Running Man and Night Shift. He pulled it out of something for sure. Funny you should say that. If you read his introduction to Nightmares and Dreamscapes, there's suspiciously, like, me doth think you protest too much. He's like, I'm not reaching into the bottom of my drawer and pulling out my worst stories. Like, he's literally confessing to, to the constant <laughs> listener that, yeah, you know what? This is the bottom, bottom feeder stuff. No, it's not. I mean, it's still good. He has an argument with himself about releasing this. And I can see why. Because, yes, if this were charming, I liked the Night Shift stories. I would have enjoyed the idea of a hitchhiker and, yeah, some, like, wind-up toy that comes to life. There's a lot of elements here that are appealing, but this story... Yeah, here's the thing. I don't know how this segment goes on for five minutes because there's nothing to the story, and yet... I want the feature-length movie of Chattery Teeth where Bill and the son of Teeth, they go from town to town. He's getting revenge on his childhood enemies that bullied him. The Teeth are like, get some really good like B-movie grinding up like ground beef. I think this would make a great 85-minute feature horror B-film. Go for it. Someone do that. I agree. If it were about a disgruntled traveling salesman who had for reasons... Yeah, wind up teeth that kill on his command, which is what happens here for reasons that, again, are never articulated in story or in this segment. Yeah, let me just put out there, Mick Garris's biggest sin so often is his just slavish interpretation of King's work. This is the short story. Most of the dialogue is taken straight from the short story, which is why it clunks so hard on the ground. What you can pull off in writing, these actors cannot deliver. <laughs> well, and I just don't think this production can, because as soon as I see those chattery teeth, like the feet and everything, I'm like, oh yeah, those are coming to life, this is going to be great. Eh, we get to see a drag a body, like I wanted to see those teeth do a lot more. Yeah, this is television. All right, so help us out. Yeah, this is a traveling salesman they established in the first moments that he's trying to get home in a sandstorm or something? Can I point something else out? He's selling UPC codes, okay? So that's from the short story. In maybe 1978, <laughs> selling UPC codes door to door would be big business. Maybe even 1988. I could see the last holdouts in the desert not having UPC readers. In 1992, <laughs> when this was published, everybody had a UPC reader, okay? So this was not written near publication. It's such a weird occupation. <laughs> yeah. And of course, this is coming out in 97. So yeah, it makes you think that he's lying or that there's something about this guy that, you know, he's supposed to get home for his son's birthday. That seems like a legit appointment you'd want to make. But for reasons, he's not anywhere near L.A., 
And yeah, he's doing this weird job and he'll later infer that he doesn't fly because of terrible things that have happened to him. There's all of this pretense that he has this dark past, or at least that's how I took it. Oh, I don't take that at all. He had a run-in with a hitchhiker before that went bad, and... Yeah. I just thought this guy had shit luck. I mean, I think we all do, right? Here we are. (laughs) But I didn't take it that he had anything beneath the surface here. And not in the short story, I don't get it either. He's a very surface-level character, a very bland, ill-defined salesman who's racing to get home for his son's birthday, which is why he's driving in the sandstorm. Yes. It doesn't really play like he wants to get there, but okay. Yeah, he tries to tell the kid no, and the kid guilts the hell out of him. Mm-hmm. And then he promises him this great toy and then realizes he doesn't have anything. So he stops in at Scooter's Grocery and Roadside Zoo. Yeah, I thought he had prepared for this birthday. Though. He really did have some great toy that we were going to see. But no, he's buying tchotchkes at a gas station in the middle of Nevada somewhere. At what age would this be a good birthday gift? Four? The kid's like five or six, right? Like, too young for deadly metal teeth. Yeah, they're made out of metal. I mean, the guy is very proud. And what's even more bizarre is the man running this grocery store slash zoo knows all about these teeth, where they come from, how much they can bite through flesh, and all of this. But they were just dropped off by Quicksilver. Christopher Lloyd sneaks in there and just sets them in among the the junk they have on sale. He did? Yeah. We see a little cameo of Quicksilver walking out. Oh, is that who that was? Yes. I thought that was the hitchhiker looking at the teeth beforehand. In that black leather, Artie? That is, it can only be Christopher Lloyd. Look at the mesh shirt. I'm telling you. Well, the salesman talks about how those teeth have been around for a long time and his wife dropped the teeth, so maybe Quicksilver was looking at the teeth, but he didn't just deliver the teeth. Okay, see, and the thing is, when you watch it in reverse order, I'm just going to preference like something that's going to happen in the future of this timeline. I had already watched an episode where we saw all the curiosities that he had on display, and the teeth were among them. So to me, it looked like he was dropping them off. Ah, no, you see... Because he talks about how his wife dropped the teeth, and that's why the teeth don't work. Broken teeth. Happy birthday, son. Yeah, I get at the root what they're trying to say is, here's a bad dad that is not there for his son and is trying to make up for it. And also nearly hit a hitchhiker and didn't stop to help him. Is just, in general, kind of in a rush and kind of doing this worthless job and really probably does need to check himself before he wrecks himself. (laughs) So my question is, is Brian Adams some kind of supernatural force meant to teach him something? The fact that this hitchhiker that he almost hit eight hours prior is suddenly here at the gas station leads me to believe that he is not just a human being. No, I just took it as coincidence. He caught up. Okay. Yeah, I took it as he got a ride and the supernatural... King is good about adding one supernatural element. He rarely, but sometimes, adds multiple. I take it as these are two humans, and the supernatural thing is the metal teeth. Just you wait till we get to Dreamweaver. There's so much going on in that. But okay. Oh, yeah. I uh, I I know it. (laughs) Shit weasels and space aliens. and (laughs) hmm, Okay. I think King, it, Tommy Knockers. I think he definitely can overload on the supernatural. He can, but in short stories especially, he tends to keep it narrow. 
So I think this guy is just a hitchhiker who you don't pick this guy up, but I put myself in this character's scenario, the salesman Bill. If I'm traveling and there's a hitchhiker there in the middle of a sandstorm, how do I say no and be at all polite? I mean, what would I do? Would I give this guy a ride? I would hope not. I'd probably say yes and then drive off before unlocking the car door, but I don't know. That's very passive-aggressive. Yeah, I think you actually just insist the guy's probably safer staying indoors with these people than being out on the road with me. <laughs> Particularly since he has nowhere to be. And again, we quickly get the idea. The name sticks out like a sore thumb, of course. And the reason is because Brian Adams is just a CD in Bill's car. And he just looked at it and picked it up. Yeah, I hadn't thought of Brian Adams for, I don't know, probably since 1997 or even before then. But as soon as he said that name, I'm like, isn't that a singer? That's like a pop singer from the 80s, isn't it? And yes, we will get that CD reveal. Mm -hmm. Reckless. This was the big one for him. But like, yeah, we're going all the way back to 1984 in a 1997 TV movie. Maybe some in the audience are confused. But the idea is this is obviously a man that's just scoping the rich traveling salesman out to... <laughs> poach him down the road. Yeah, you see that van he's driving? He is not rich. <laughs> he haggled on those teeth and ended up getting the teeth for free because they were broken. That's not a man with a ton of money. That's what I mean about this being maybe a supernatural. Like, there's nothing about the presentation that makes me think he's supernatural, but, like, it's so bizarre that I almost feel like he's there to, like, tell this guy to stop being a jerk because he almost ran him down on the road and because he's getting these awful teeth for his son, like... You deserve to have a switchblade pulled on you and to lose your wheels. I don't know. I have no idea what's going on in this story. I have no idea. Well, Stuart, we are going to be told that there is no morality to this tale, only what you bring into it. So you got to bring in something if you want to get something out. <laughs> yeah, Quicksilver is going to wash his hands of this one, and I understand why. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a really quick thing. They barely get on the road before this hitchhiker pulls a knife. And is like, I'm going to take your money, I'm going to take your car, I'm going to take your chattery teeth. But Bill is like, no, and floors the gas, which again signifies that there's something about him, Death Wish style, like he's the nerd that's been pushed and now he's going to fight back. Like, I'll kill us both. See, that's what I was thinking, is he's been pushed too far. He's had shit luck in airplanes and the other hitchhiker, and he just wasn't going to take one more case of being the loser in this scenario. And that's a really kind of smart tactic. You're not going to stab the driver of a 100-mile-an-hour car. Yeah, but if that's the case, I want to see Bill lose a few more times at the beginning. Like, I don't know, someone throws a Slurpee out their window and it hits him in his bright, freshly clean shirt. I don't know if his wife is really upset at her flaky husband or if she's an overbearing wife. I don't know. I have no way to anchor what's going on in this. Yeah, if you had cast Clint Howard, we would get that. But they cast the guy that was like the cool new husband from the frame story. So it doesn't translate that he was some nerd or some put upon person. So why the teeth come alive? To protect him? Um, Because we need something to happen? <laughs> it's better in the short story. In the short story, he thinks the teeth are after him. So there's the paranoia that everything in the car is against him. Here, the teeth just come to life at the right moment and protect him, and so I don't see where the suspense is. 
Well, it's during the commercial break because we see the teeth after they attack Brian Adams. They turn to Bill and, oh, did they get him? But we're going to find out after these messages. I can't tell where the commercial breaks were in this. The way the DVD was edited. There's definitely a commercial break there. It flew past me. I just, I realized after watching this that I couldn't tell where the television act breaks were. Oh, yeah, they're still in evidence in the YouTube. If you want to go and look, they actually fade in and out in ways that are telegraphing where you'd put the Pizza Hut commercial. <laughs> but yeah, okay, so the teeth just come alive to help this guy get free of his seatbelt. And then the punchline is that he goes back nine months later and the guy that gave him the teeth is dead. Veronica Cartwright is off the Nostromo and is here running the show now. <laughs> and she's like, oh yeah, the teeth came back. Here, have them. She was there, of course, at the beginning, but now she's like more sexy now that her husband's dead. She's more sexy. Yeah, it's like she's dressed up more. Ah, uh huh. You think that she was coming on to him? No, I just think her life has improved. What they're saying is her husband died, but her life improved. The store's doing well with that VHS section. Yeah, because she didn't have to hold on to this junk that her husband wanted to, except for those teeth, because the husband just said, hey, hold on to these. This guy might come back for these someday. Hold on to these teeth. That's crazy. Oh, hey, another point. A thing in the story and in this teleplay, because they won't deviate from the story, the husband is renovating to put in video rentals. You might do that in 1984. You might still do that in 1987. By 1992, any place that was going to start renting tapes rented tapes, but Blockbuster was taking you down. And why would you do it at a truck stop where people are like, they're going to grab it and then never come back again? No, they do. I don't know if they still do it, but no, they used to do that. You could rent stuff like the Flying J's and you drop it off at another Flying J. Well, yeah, but there's only one of these, is my point. Yeah, I don't know how they're getting their copy of Back to the Future back. Yeah, <laughs> no, I just, again, I struggle to tell you what anything that's happening means. Like, you're saying that she's her life's improved. I thought they were telling us she's gone through a loss as well and bonding with him on his near-death experience. And again, like, oh, here, my husband's dying wish was that you have your teeth back. <laughs> and they were there after your accident, they came walking back and now, I don't know, might snap at my dog. Shouldn't he be stuck with like another hitchhiker or maybe a co-worker in the van that he wants to get rid of when he gets those teeth back? Like, it's weird that he just gets the teeth back without anyone to go after. No. See, the thing is, what I take is his life has gotten better also. He's now more successful. He's in a nicer car. The van is upgraded. Yeah. Everybody that this teeth came in contact with improved or died those were the two options here and i did like the graphics of the teeth attacking the hitchhiker that was funny in an intentional way i'm sure having these novelty teeth biting his fingers off that's amusing to me oh yeah no i we should have had a hundred percent more of that going on in this story yeah, I feel like you just do what they did in Battleground. Like, it's an adult man realizing he has to fight a toy. And that's kind of funny. This could have been, conceptually, I guess an okay late 90s TV anthology show episode. It feels like Tales from the Dark Side or one of those equivalents. But, yeah, you're right. You would have to change things about what King wrote. And that is just why King loves 
Megara so much, he would never dare to do that. But yeah, the teeth were waiting for him. I guess they walked back to the truck stop on their own. Again, to get him? Like, I can't even get the impression that the teeth are like, you're not going to get away or want to be his friend? In the short story, it's very clear they want to be his friend. They want to protect him. Yeah, that's, I think, the impression we're to have here. Yeah. I don't get it. I don't get it. Yeah, but we got to know what he's being protected from. Again, we need more information about Bill for this to be satisfying. Well, this is what you get, and then we're back to Christopher Lloyd. (laughs) So it gets better. We get back to Christopher Lloyd and that hairdo. Yeah, he's eating strawberries and going on and on about, I'm not a moralist, I'm a storyteller. I'm like, I can tell, because nobody could find a moral out of this. (laughs) And maybe it's Nietzsche, maybe it's Soupy Sales. I don't know what kind of oh Henry ending you want to call this. But yes, the husband walked back and got hit by a guy in a sports car, and now the teeth have found him and are dragging him away. I mean, that's not irony. That's just idiocy. That's just a logic. It reminds me of the anthology shows you and I used to watch, Stuart, that were sub-tier. I'm not talking Tales from the Dark Side. I'm not talking Tales from the Crypt. I'm talking monsters, you know? (laughs) That kind of really bad anthology show that would air late at night once a week. And it would have twist endings like this, twists with air quotes, Mm -hmm. that, in hindsight, weren't clever, didn't make sense. It was just poor writing. (laughs) Yeah, and I'll just say this, Stuart, I get... Your confusion, your frustration with this, it's sloppy, it's bad, it's also really campy, and I kind of enjoy it, and unlike Nightmares and Dreamscapes, if this is night one, I'm coming back for night two, because this is weird enough, with these teeth that are walking around, I wish they expanded it more, but it's got something to it, like, there is some kind of draw for me, like, yes, I want to come back and see more episodes of this. I'm not going to disagree. I agree that there is something that Garrus does get right about all of this, that makes it feel like... If not Creepshow, at least Creepshow 2, right? (laughs) Yeah. There's something kind of childishly, gleefully bloodletting about these concepts that, you're right, it isn't Tales from the Crypt. That would be the show that would be running around this time that you'd want to get on. This is like Freddy's Nightmares or Nightmare Cafe or whatever Robert England was doing in 1997. Nightmare Cafe, yes, that was oof. But... Jacob, I wouldn't come back for night two after this one, but especially Christopher Lloyd and that get up and that's why you come back. Yeah, you would definitely want to know where Christopher Lloyd is going. I want to know his wardrobe choices every week. I hope he has a new leather coat and mesh shirt every week. Yeah, he claims he just lives on the highway and drives up and down. And maybe, as you indicated, Arnie, he's going to go to real haunted places and tell us about them. But I don't think that was ever in McGarris's purview. That was just an ABC exec's order that Mick didn't do. I think he was always going to be doing short story adaptations, which is why, number two, we get Clive Barker. But the framing story there, I don't like... The gimmick they have of someone in the framing story is also the main character in the story being told when they're, like Christopher Lloyd said, there's no moral, there's no correlation here. The only thing we have from the first one is that both characters played by Sabarge had car wrecks. That's the only correlation there. Yeah, you say that and I get it because I don't care about Sabaro in that last one, but Matt Frewer. 
Once I realized, oh, we're doing another framing story here, it's weird that Quicksilver isn't on the highway in this one. He's hanging out at, like, Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco or something. But when I'm like, oh, no, Matt Frewer can't just be here for the framing story. He needs to be, like, in this whole thing. Thank goodness he is, though. And aren't you having, like, a moment of, oh, my God, they're on the same screen. They're not the same person. Christopher Lloyd and Matt Frewer are two different people. Like, I'm getting mind raped just thinking that. (laughs) I feel like Matt Frewer could do that with a few, like him and Jim Carrey. I could have that moment, him and Christopher Lloyd, like Matt Frewer, a true rubber faced incognito really goes after those great B movie actors. Mick Garris bragged that Matt Frewer is the actor with whom he's worked the most. Trash can man. Yeah. I will say I do like this setup during the framing. Matt Frewer's character is a pickpocket. And I do like this tracking shot we get as he's pulling all these cons and stealing things. It's dumb, but it's engaging enough. Like it's pulling me in to see some of this kind of cool camera work for something that doesn't deserve it, frankly. I like all of that, and I like how fast he is with the pickpockets. What I hate is the last person he pickpockets notices their wallet's missing and shrieks like they found a dead body. That's not how a person reacts if their wallet is missing or their purse is missing. They go, where did I set it? There's always the moments of confusion before you run to I was robbed. And even if you get to I was robbed, you may call a cop, but you're not going to shriek bloody murder. Perhaps she caught Christopher Lloyd out of the corner of her eye and that's why she's shrieking. (laughs) Yeah, he did not do a costume change. Nope. Lawrence Olivier on the screen here. And... Now we find out that what he was hauling on the road, perhaps, is this tent full of curiosities. It's like a Ripley's Believe It or Not. All these things are probably future stories, and we see the chattering teeth. If you had seen it in the reverse order, you would know that as he's walking up to this hand that's been severed and dipped in the fat of someone that died on the gallows. Again, it's a hand candelabra. You would know the story was all going to be about a hand. And so we do jump to the Clive Barker story. We slowly check off Clive Barker's works in an unofficial retrospective here. Yeah, is there anyone that you still want to do? This story comes from the same book of blood that Candyman did. And we've covered all those. We covered Hellraiser, Nightbreed's in the book, Lord of Illusion is out for patrons. Rawhead Rex would be a fun one. (laughs) I don't remember it being that fun, but it is the only one I can think of at this point. Well, there's transmutations. Yeesh. Let's not forget the Dawson's Creek guy in the one. Yeah, we can. We can forget all of that. (laughs) At any rate, I just want to put it out there that this story is really cool. To me, anyway, if you read it, it's a parable slash parody about any political revolution. It starts with hands in a factory. He's a factory worker. And you think about all those Soviet protests or whatever forming the fist and standing outside, you know, the union and all of that. Like that just, there's something about that that goes, pun intended, hand in hand. And you really see that the left side, the right side, they seem to collaborate and then they, I don't know. To me, there's something kind of fun about the idea that if we look at the way that countries and movements secede from larger movements, it could be thought of as a hand ripping itself off the body. Was it a lot of dialogue or are there scenes where hands are like running around recruiting other ones? Because I could see how that would be a really good story, like funny story, making some good satirical points. Because, yeah, when I find out this is about hands like revolting and like I am the Messiah and we got to recruit people like I'm like, oh, this is kind of great. But does it feel this campy when you read it or is it more serious? 
It's funny, but I would say you're not laughing at the shoddiness. And so this is funny because they can't obviously pull it off. In the story, you're seeing a lot of different people. It's not just about, again, it's not a plastic surgeon or whatever. Here, they're trying to make, I think this one is a morality tale. Arnie, you're right. The first one doesn't make any sense. But here, I definitely think they're trying to imply that because Matt Frewer made his living picking pockets, and this guy... That's just one of those shorthands like lawyers, right? If you're a plastic surgeon, then you're probably a contemptible person. Yeah, you don't respect the body because you're always changing it. And so I can see why your body would turn against you. Yeah. You charge people a lot of money. Yeah, you play off people's vanity. Like, I feel like that's one of those professions where we usually hate the person. And so, yeah, we're seeing Matt Frewer, who's, I think, pretty contemptible anyway, (laughs) going to get his comeuppance twice. Yeah, they take some time getting to it. They really have to establish him with multiple plastic surgery patients and things, and then driving home like Doctor Strange, almost getting in a car wreck. So much better than Doctor Strange, yeah. And then when he is laying in bed, and he starts doing those hand motions, I'm like, pretty good Jim Carrey impersonation. Like, Jim Carrey, that's why you get him, to do all this wacky physical comedy. But, like, those hands start talking to each other. Oh, boy. Like, Wow. Yeah, Matt Frewer put a lot of work in to figure out what the hand motions were going to be and to have the dexterity to do this and things. And I think it pays off. Yes, it's a kind of silly idea that I never revered on the page as much as Stuart you appear to. I thought it was a good short story, never great. But to see it done here, I kind of like the finger movements he's doing. And unfortunately, the squeaky voices, one of which is McGarris's voice, undercuts it a little bit. It works better in prose where the hands are talking and you don't have to hear what the voice sounds like but i actually legitimately like what's going on here matt frewer put in a lot of work or matt frewer put in evil dead 2 (laughs) and said yeah i'm gonna do this it's embarrassing watching an actor mimic another actor and it's so obvious bruce campbell you can almost hear him giggling at how much you've stolen his great moment in evil dead 2 and tried to do it here that's Matt frewer in a nutshell right i want to be jim carrey i want to be bruce campbell nowhere in evil dead 2 did the hand talk and do like finger motions like i'm talking about yes it did it actually squeaked exactly like this hand Right, but I'm saying like the finger motions. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, you're clinging to the idea that there's some spark of creativity here that I will not give it. No, there is, Stuart, because here's the thing. Like, yeah, he's doing all these crazy hand motions. I love like his wife wakes up and is just staring at those hands and they slowly realize, oh, she might be onto us. And like they just slowly like fold and retract. I don't know. Pretty good finger work. Yeah. I agree the idea is funny, but I also realize that I've seen this before, and Matt Frewer is a wannabe. Like, Matt Frewer wishes he were Bruce Campbell, and he's not. I totally agree with that. This is who you get when the real guy isn't available, or out of your price range. Right, yes. This whole thing is that. That's exactly it. It's like, oh, how much I find myself leaning in and wanting the good version of this story to be done. Because, yeah, there's so much here that's entertaining, but we've got to watch it as this junky 90s anthology horror show. And because I watched this in the DVD order with the chattery teeth first, I was prepared for this. I was ready. I was expecting it. And yeah, it's fun. I get it. If that story is something more serious and poignant than this, this might be disappointing, but this is just campy good fun. 
I agree completely with Jacob. I'm actually having legitimate enjoyment of this story, not ironic enjoyment of this story. Until the hand separates, right? No. No, then it gets better. You know what? It looks better than I expected it to, is the compliment I can give. Yes. (laughs) Wow. I expected the very worst, and it is not the very worst. Okay. All right. Yeah, it's not the very worst, but it does definitely feel like, yeah, you saw how they did Thing on an (laughs) Adams Family music video five years ago, and now you're trying to do that on the cheap for this opening here. Oh, yeah. When they're doing the Thing hand, like, running around, there's definitely limited motion compared to Adams Family. Yes. But again, I'm not hating this. I think it is funny. And I'm not trying to imply the story was a work of art and they've turned it into trash. No, I think they're capturing the spirit of the story, more or less. It just, the limitations. The fact that everything has to be done so quickly and garishly. And yeah, the psychiatrist was a whole character. As you can imagine, how psychotherapy would analyze what the hands mean and all of that. That was its own fun little monologue. And here it's just... Radio Rahim gets two minutes here to say, ah, you're just thinking about your dad. And I guess what I'm saying is that you can feel at every corner that they've cut, changed, reduced to the point that this thing feels very much smaller than it should. And again, maybe because you really seem to revere that short story, I felt like that short story always felt kind of small. I mean, it literally had more characters. So you would definitely be missing all the people whose hands got changed and and pulled into this revolution. I mean, yes, we're not going to get any of the politics really in this, but I don't feel like this is small. We're going to get a whole hospital scene of people cutting off their hands. Exactly. We just don't get it as slow as the story. But I feel like this does have scope when we get to the hospital. And unfortunately, Matt Frewer is not as good at keeping his arm bent so that we know his hand is not just under a wrap. (laughs) That was a worse effect than the disembodied hands was trying to make us think he didn't have a hand there. I just wanted to know what these hands plans were to get the other hand off. I don't think we ever saw someone lose two hands. Well, we see that they're gathering in huge numbers to do that very thing at the end. I mean, like 15 of them. And I assume that the right is the Messiah because he was right-handed. Most people have a dominant right hand, and that's... Because you don't necessarily... When you think about left or right politics, and I think of the right being conservative. And so the liberal one would be the one seeking the freedom. I mean, that's just a little detail. I think you're looking too far into it. It's that he's right-handed. <laughs> Yeah, but again, I don't think I'm looking too far into it if you look at the story. The story is intended to be read kind of like Kafka. It definitely feels like the man that turned into the bug. It's kind of an absurdist thing. You could appreciate it just sort of as comedy, but there's also layers of meaning and metaphor that makes it more interesting. And here, yes, it's just been reduced to a junky TV episode, but it doesn't make it bad. I agree with you. I really enjoyed and laughed I think you laugh at it as much as you laugh with it. You guys are acting like, oh, no, this is as good as it needs to be. You would want it to be better. No, but I think what I'm laughing at is intentional humor. I don't think I'm laughing derisively at it at all. It's a lighthearted story. Oh, yeah, that's not being debated. Obviously, you were not to be terrified that the hands were (laughs) ripping themselves off. It was abusing. Yeah, no, I'm laughing at that as the hands are turning against other people. And like, you get that scene with the security guard where the hand convinces the security guard's hands to turn against him. That stuff is fun, but I am having some meta laughs. Like, we get to this climax where 
I guess the only way to defeat the hands is for Matt Frewer to convince them he's the Messiah or his hands still attached to his body is the Messiah and jump off a roof and they'll all follow. And I'm just cracking up because I can just imagine the production assistants having to be up like on this roof on a cold night, pulling out these rubber molded hands and tossing them <laughs> off the roof and like, make your, we need a couple more shots. Get a couple more back up there. We're going to do some research. Like to me, that is kind of funny because when those rubber hands hit the ground, oof, it's bad. Obviously props. So there are some laughs to me like that. Like as funny as it is to think of Stuart sitting in the Fox studio, giggling at this to actually be on set. Oh boy. Yes, I agree. And again, it can play in both ways. I mean, I think you can enjoy what you're experiencing at the same time you're going, oh, this is so (laughs) sad that this is all that they had. And they definitely changed the ending here to have, I don't know. I mean, Quicksilver's going to literally call out, she did it despite her face. I guess you have to be that blunt. I thought there was no morals. Right. But obviously there are, because immediately the pickpocket's hands are forcing him to confess. The whole reason why he was hanging out in that tent listening and indulging Quicksilver was the fact that he knew that the cops were looking for him out on the boardwalk, and now they're making him pick the pocket of a cop who's going to turn around and arrest him, recognize him as the guy that everyone wants to see in jail. That's a moral tale, and again, that feels like a comic book creep show kind of play out. This feels, ironically, more Stephen King than the Stephen King one did. Yeah, and... I'm now where Jacob is. Seeing the second night of the show, I'd come back for night three, willingly and happily. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm totally down for this now. Why didn't this get a show? Why did we have to do dreamscapes and nightmares? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I guess the reason why they felt they had to make that show the way that it was was because this didn't play anymore. This is the end of an era. We don't do this kind of campy. This feels 80s and nightmares and dreamscapes. It definitely felt like post-Shawshank Redemption were taking this maybe too seriously. But should we take this seriously? Yes. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Quicksilver Highway? Jacob. Dare I say the best thing Mick Garris has done, at least for Stephen King adaptations, like, oh boy, you list all that other stuff. I'm going to have to check out that Michael Jackson thing. It may be better than this in a (laughs) brown era way, but... No, it's not. Okay. It's amazing, but it's terrible. (laughs) but yeah this look i'm saying this is his best thing because it's tv and limited budget like there are way better versions of these two stories and they're not even necessarily like serious i think these more or less get the right tone for that b-movie creep show type thing that you've been discussing Stuart. i think these more or less get it right for tv chattering teeth like yeah there's some character work there that's desirable but Oh boy, I imagine it's such a great film with that. So I could give that one the weak recommend just for the concept alone because there is something to really mine out of that story. And I don't know, I like seeing those teeth just drag bodies around. It's fun. Wow, okay. But yeah, the body politic, that's the reason to watch. Well, the reason to watch this is for Christopher Lloyd's wardrobe. That is the main thing to see. Mm -hmm. And then to see, (laughs) so number one, number two, then you get to see Christopher Lloyd and Matt Frewer act together, have scenes together. Ooh. Oh my God. Agreed. Yeah. And then the body politic. Like, <laughs> like this is a fun story. Like, I like seeing those hands run around, seeing the hands get thrown off the building. It's absurdist. It's silly. It's campy. But it's fun. Like, I, I was smiling during this, and I never did that during Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Like, I haven't done that for a long time, I feel, with King. Like, I gotta have some fun for once. So, yeah, this is not great. This is barely good, but it is a recommend. 
Stewart. We're not that far off, at least in terms of the body politic. I agree. This is the kind of bad that's, it plays to your inner child. Like the one that did used to get scared or at least watch a lot of this kind of stuff, rented this from the video store in the 80s. It is the best thing that McGuire's has ever done. And that counts for something. Again, maybe because it's not all Stephen King. As I actually, my theory, when he's working with King, he's devoted to broken stories that need shaping that he can't, is not allowed to touch. And here, Body Politic, he did change a lot to make it work within the format for television. He tweaked it to be the kind of silly, low-budget thing it needed to be. And that is the brown arrow. If I could just recommend Body Politic, I would say yes, the Jacob Review. This is something that you're going to have fun with. You get Frewer and Lloyd together for the first time ever. <laughs> and who wins? I think... Christopher Lloyd wins just because of the outfit? Because of the wardrobe, but Frewer comes off more dignified because he doesn't have that wardrobe on. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure if there's a winner there, but it was a delight to see. And then, yeah, all that bad hand effects and all of that. And again, the story in there that I did genuinely like getting mashed up for television. The flop is king. I didn't think that that would be in dispute. I thought Shattery Teeth was awful. All kinds of awful. Like, didn't play on the page. Doesn't make any sense here. Doesn't have appealing actors even to like bring it to any kind of point at all. And so, yeah, King is shown up. I mean, they talk about good versus evil and light versus dark. If it's Barker versus King, Barker wins. I definitely think that you only want to go halfway down this highway. And because Chattery Teeth is so bad, I'm going to ultimately say mild not recommend. And for me, Quicksilver Highway was a huge disappointment, because Stuart, you told us that story off-air of you being at Fox and finding this tape and laughing hysterically at it and how you couldn't wait to get to this one, and I thought I was in for a brown arrow yuck fest, and that is not what this is. <laughs> I don't even find chattery teeth to be brown arrow territory. No, it's bad. And I found the first night, Chattery Teeth, to not be good. The acting is really bad. The frame story did not tie to the main story. I actually liked the acting done by the Brian Adams hitchhiker character. I thought he came across malevolent enough, and I thought the teeth attack was funny enough. But by the end of that first night, I was like, eh, this isn't brown arrow terrible it's whatever do i recommend that first night i guess not because whatever i didn't have a strong reaction good or bad i just kept thinking it's a lot like that short story down to the dialogue and i didn't really like the short story <laughs> but then the body politic turned out to be so much better than i expected again hearing about the laugh riot you were having I expected this to be all kinds of bad. You're turning this wrong. We had the same experience watching the thing. I gave it a recommend. It's a fun time. But it was trash. I mean, it is Brown Arrow. This is a obvious, when you look at it on its surface, a bad presentation. I would, as far as television goes, give the body politic a green arrow, not a brown arrow. It is a fine and interesting and fun 
episode of the Twilight Zone. Oh, and to me, it's Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. I don't know if that's brown or green, but it's entertaining. Yeah, it's not Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone always had a higher... That was like the smart school version of it. It always had morals to its storytelling. There was always a punchline. Okay, Tales from the Crypt then. I'll go with that. But I think this would work among the better episodes of Tales of the Crypt. So, and then there's the Christopher Lloyd frame story, which is just so... There's your brown arrow. Christopher Lloyd in that getup talking a mile a minute, that's brown arrow territory. But overall, yeah, this is a green arrow recommend. I think we mostly saw the same thing, except I don't get you guys about the chattery teeth. Yeah, the actual teeth were well done, but nothing else in that was anywhere near entertaining. That one was stunk up the screen. And maybe because that's on the DVD, that's the first one. So I was still in shock over Mm -hmm. Christopher Lloyd's hairdo and outfit. It just carried over into the actual story. That is totally possible. Yeah, I think you're right. Having that come second, the way I experienced, is a real deflation. It really, again, it turned what was an enjoyable... Again, I'm struggling. Like, you don't want to give people the impression this is Tales from the Crypt. Go back and watch that. Those were A-list, Robert Zemeckis, really good directors with budgets making those episodes. At least the best episodes of those. But this is... I would compare it to Monsters. Yeah, body politic feels like Monsters or... Somewhere in that realm of like, definitely not Twilight Zone, definitely not Tales from the Crypt, but more fun than most of those kinds of shows. And the thing I would advocate is it's too bad we didn't get Mick Garris doing, I don't know if they should have done The Mummy together, but I know that he and Barker had worked on a feature adaptation of In the Flesh. I would like to see that. I actually think it would probably help my opinion, esteem of Mick Garris's approach to directing if I could see him be more playful with a different writer. Don't do any more King. But of course he did. I just want to point out this was the end of a stretch with King for him. But about a decade later, he did do three more. We got three more Mick Garris, Stephen King collaborations coming at us. Oh, no. Desperation. It's going to come off as desperate. (laughs) (laughs) That's not just Garris's mental state. That is the title of the book that I guess he adapted. (laughs) Another small town kind of thing where Ron Perlman is an evil shape-shifting sheriff or something. And Matt Frewer's in it. Steven Weber, too. Oh, boy. That's a team-up I didn't know I wanted. (laughs) Bag of Bones. Pierce Brosnan is a writer. Imagine that. A writer in Maine (laughs) and some ghosts or something come for him. I don't know. Didn't see it. I've seen Desperation. I haven't seen Bag of Bones. And then something like it's just a feature. It's a short story adaptation, Riding the Bullet, which is another hitchhiker thing. Evil David Arquette feature length adaptation. But we're not getting any of those next. We're still trying to knock off the short stories that were adapted from Nightmares and Dreamscapes. And in, what, two weeks... We're going to cover some little movie about a guy that turns into a spider or something next week. But afterwards, we can get back to Stephen King and Christian Slater. I know that's got to have you salivating, Arnie. (laughs) King and Slater on Dolan's Cadillac. Never heard of it. (laughs) What? You? There would have been a time you wouldn't have been able to resist. Yeah, I can't believe you don't know a Christian Slater movie. I know the short story, but I have not heard this is news to me this very second that Christian Slater is in it. Oh, okay. I knew there was a time in your life where you didn't miss, like, cuffs. You were there. Like, anything that man did, you were an audience. 
you know, he did really well in Mr. Robot, so maybe he's good here. I look forward to finding out in two weeks. But next week, as you said, the biggest movie of the year. I'm just going to put it out there. This will be the number one box office of 2021, Spider-Man No Way Home. Yeah, people are beating each other, I guess, to see this thing. And, of course, it's weaving in all the old fans. So those that felt left behind when they kicked poor Andrew Garfield out or missed Tobey Maguire. Is he going to be in the movie? Nobody knows, but his villains are. Yeah, I noticed that part. Yeah, you know what? The only Spider-Man I care about showing up in that one is Nick Cage as a Spider-Man noir. Live action version this time. See, I'm just disappointed because Nicholas Hammond has confirmed he is not in it as TV Spider-Man. (laughs) <laughs> no, okay, I don't have to rewatch those ones at least. I don't know what that is. Remember we did the TV movies? The, the Dragon's Den or whatever? Oh my god. <laughs> Ooh, yes, I had blocked that, but yes. The Dragon whatever, yeah. I guess some of the stunt work was okay for 1977, but yeah, I don't want to go back to those. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. I'm not the Spider-Man fan, so I've struggled with Marvel's interpretation of this character. Hopefully they can pull it over the line and give me a good movie. Good conclusion? Is this the last one? Oh, no. They already announced a new trilogy. With Tom Holland. Yeah. No, Well, of course. I guess biggest <laughs> movie of the year. They're not letting that go. But this Friday, if you want more terror and chills like the Stephen King, we've got the fourth installment of our Paranormal Activity Gold Donation Series. I thought you said terrors and chills you wanted. (laughs) Or just static shots of people eating in front of their laptop. (laughs) Hey, not a single installment of Paranormal Activity has gotten three red arrows yet. So we like something in there. How do we feel about four? Fingers crossed. You can find out this Friday and help support Now Playing. There's so many bonus shows for you to listen to. And we just hope you can come out and support the show we do every single Tuesday. And if you do support us, we say thank you with all these bonus podcasts. And it's been a long donation drive. So remember, the silver level has the home invasion films Don't Breathe, The Strangers, and You're Next. The gold level is all these paranormal activity films that'll go into early next year with Paranormal Activity 7, Next of Kin. And then at the Platinum level, we had A Quiet Place 1 and 2 and Bird Box. And then on levels beyond that, we have Ghostbusters, The Matrix, Candyman, and all the Tom Cruise stuff because we thought Top Gun was coming out (laughs) this month. Really? We wheeled that out in the hopes that Top Gun was keeping its Thanksgiving date? Nah. Yeah. Gonna be May, people. Maybe. No promises. (laughs) Don't say Omnicron five times and disappear. (laughs) It's gonna be the perpetual top-level donation forever Mm. as we wait for Top Gun 2. So, thank you all for listening. Thank you for your support of our show. Jacob Stewart, thanks for going down this highway with me, because life is a highway. I want to drive it all night long. And until next time, viva la revolution. Are we there yet? Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We hope you've enjoyed the show. I'll be back soon, I promise, okay? Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original novels. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. 
And also come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. Daddy ever broken a promise to you before? In the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and more. How charming. In our archives are also reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, Transformers, and RoboCop. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Okay, thanks. I'll do that. My pleasure. Need more Now Playing? Subscribe to our In Focus weekly newsletter for exclusive digital download giveaways, celebrity interviews, behind-the-scenes insights, and more. Sign up through the subscribe page on our website and get it delivered to your inbox every Friday. Follow me! Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Lucky me, a customer. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I never should have let him go. Perhaps not. Maybe you should have listened to that little voice. Instinct is a powerful little beast when it whispers in your ear. You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. May I toss you a lifesaver? Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Most interesting line of work, dude, Mark. Associate produced by Jason. General all-purpose creative genius. That's me. Now Playing is edited by Santiago and Arnie. If you're Nietzsche, you might say that which does not kill you makes you stronger. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. You're the best there is. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Why are you telling me this? Does this have moral or a point? Must every story have a moral point? Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. Be true to your teeth and they won't be false to you. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Seems like they ain't talking. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the expressed written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. All right, I had a bad experience a few years ago, and you might say it kind of vaccinated me. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2021, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Don't you guys love me anymore? Okay, I guess. You know what? My dad definitely brought home things that were not that great from road trips. I distinctively remember some buffalo turds with like a bird face stuck on it. And uh, it was like a pet you were supposed to keep, like a pet rock.